are listening to The Bill Murphy Show, the music interview show featuring the best in the business. From behind the scenes, in the studio, and on the stage. Available by subscription for free on iTunes and at BillMurphyShow.com. And now, here's your host, Bill Murphy. And now, here's another brand new digital broadcast for you for this Thursday, August 9th. 2012 brought to you by our friends at Lulu's Bait Shack in Fort Lauderdale Beach. Great live music, fresh Florida seafood, those gigantic, delicious fishbowl drinks right there in Beach Place on A1A in the heart of Fort Lauderdale Beach. Great place to catch live music if you're in the area, whether you live here or you're planning to visit. Also, our friends at Millennium Laser Eye Center in Sunrise, Florida, also a great place to plan your laser surgery, your LASIK surgery. During a uh, vacation to Fort Lauderdale, if you're out of town, well worth the visit to Dr. Corey Lesner and his staff over there. Big music fans and supporters of the Bill Murphy Show, we really appreciate it. Another well overdue show for me, somebody I've been trying to get on for a long, long time. This intro is going to take forever because this guy has had some career. We've got on the phone with us an award-winning pianist, singer, songwriter, film music composer, and producer... Winner of 10 ASCAP awards at last count. Graduate of the High School of Performing Arts in Fort Lauderdale. He studied at the Manhattan School of Music in NYU. He's opened concerts for Alanis Morissette, Goo Goo Dolls, and many others. Plus, he's headlined numerous shows, constantly playing, it seems like. His live CD, DVD, Embrace, won a 2008 Silver Medal Award for Excellence in a Performance Film at the Park City Film Music Festival. He's recently released his ninth solo album, Good Company, which we will listen to a little bit of tonight, today. And uh, plus, he's had multiple other awards, TV, radio appearances, film credits, and concert tours that we don't have time to cover right now, but we'll try to get to some of them. And we'll get to some upcoming dates, including some Utah shows that are going on throughout August. Joining us from Park City, Utah, the great Rich Wyman. How you doing, Rich? I'm doing fine. How are you doing, Bill? Great, sir. I uh, we it, we we go way back. We have a connection from this uh, from the South Florida area, and um, I'm really surprised that it took me over two years of doing this show to get you on. But I'm glad that we finally got to hook up. Uh, me too. Me too. You uh, now right now you're getting ready to do as we uh, tape this show uh, the evening before on uh, the night of Wednesday, August eighth. Getting ready to play a show there in uh, Salt Lake City. So you constantly seem to be playing. I am really, really excited to listen to some of this music because all I can say is, wow, when I listen to your stuff, you've really accomplished a lot. Let's first start with how you ended up in Park City, Utah. Somewhere on your bio, it explains that you went there on a ski trip, fell in love with the place, and ended up moving there. I can't think, I'm sure everyone has had a moment where they visited somewhere and said, man, I would just really love to live here, but you actually did that. Talk a little bit about how you ended up there. Well, I was living in New York City and um, got invited to go on a ski trip with some friends. It was an all-expenses-paid trip, you know, uh, airfare, hotel, ski rental, lift tickets, ski lessons, limousines, everything. So, of course, I went, and uh, <laughs> when, I got to, when I got to Park City, I didn't really know how to ski very well, but the first night in Park City, you know, we went up to the historic Main Street. It's an old silver mining town. <laughs> and um, wound up playing the piano at a club on Main Street, and uh, the owner came up and asked me what I was doing that for the summer. 
Um, and New York in the summer is pretty, you know, hot and gross. So I was always looking for reasons to get out of New York during the summer. So I, I went out to Park City on my motorcycle and um, I'd never experienced, you know, I'd always flown from New York to L.A. and San Francisco, but I'd never really seen much in between. And um, Park City was just beautiful, the mountains. And the fact that it's only 40 minutes from the Salt Lake International Airport is also what's great about it um, because you're so so close to an international airport and you're up in these beautiful mountains in 40 minutes, whereas I think a lot of the ski resorts, like in Colorado, you're two, three, four-hour drives from the airport. You know? Right, so right. The proximity of Park City to the, uh, to the airport makes it also really logistically uh, a great place, you know, um, and it's, uh, there's a thriving music scene here between, you know, Salt Lake City's got well over a million people. Um, there are seven major ski resorts here. So during the winter, um, there's more work here than I know what to do. And during the summer, there's also a big season during the summer. And during the spring and the fall, when it kind of gets quieter here, I usually go on tour to Europe. So it's just worked out really well. It's a beautiful place to live. Um, my kids, I've raised my kids up in Park City, and um, it's just been, uh, been, been great. You know, it sounds like a great balance because you've got that international you know, uh, experience and getting over. I know you do a lot of work over in the Netherlands and, and do a lot of traveling. And, and again, as you described, it's, it's far enough off the beaten path, but still close enough to uh, get you where you need to go. So that sounds like um, an excellent situation, but you're to be commended for actually following through with something like that. Cause like I said, I'm sure that crosses everybody's mind at some point, you know, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I kind of dip. I didn't plunge into it. You know, I kind of dipped my toes. I, I came out that first uh, ski, ski trip. I came out for that summer and then I went back to New York and then I came back out the following winter and that's where I met Eddie Van Halen and, everything just kind of like, okay, I'm definitely not going back to New York right now. <laughs> yeah, we definitely want to get into that Eddie Van Halen connection. In fact, we'll listen to something that you did with him. We want to get into that. Uh, but I do want to talk a little bit about um, this th- this career that you've made into music. It's also a very brave move to decide that uh, you want to do music for a living you're a very, very schooled uh, piano player, and I guess someone of your skill really deserves to be called a pianist, whether using the proper term, you know. And so I'm sure that you had the typical childhood piano lessons. I want to, I want you to see, I'll see if you can kind of crystallize and verbalize what happened when you made that uh, transition from, ah, you know, just kind of learning how to play the piano, figuring out what this is all about, to going wow, this is really something that I'm finding uh, I have a lot of skill with and I really want to take it to the next level. At what, how early of an age did something like that happen for you? Well, I started actually taking classical violin first um, when I was five. Um, my mom did that so that my brother and I wouldn't be uh, competing on the same instrument. Um, even though I was already playing the piano by ear. And then a couple years later, he quit. So when I was about seven, I was taking both classical and piano and violin. This is in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where I, where I was born and where I grew up until I was 15, when I moved to, to uh, Plantation. Right. Um, uh, but there was a crystal moment, you know, a couple of them. When I was eight, I wrote my first song, uh, and 
that was really exciting for me. Um, and then a real crystal moment was when I was 13, and I had written this song to this girl I was kind of going out with at the time in Allentown. And she had a party, and I remember playing the song in the basement at her party for everybody, and the, everyone pulled up chairs and sat around the piano, and all the girls cried, <laughs> and, all the, and all the guys were envious, and that was a real crystal moment, like, wow. Yeah. This is, uh, this is pretty powerful. Um, and so that was a, 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 a moment I'll never forget. And then I played my first like gig when I was 14 at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, um, and a little place called Godfrey Daniels, which I th- think is still there. And there were like seven people there, my family and a couple other people. And um, that was a moment. And then when I moved to Fort Lauderdale, or a plantation, um, I remember uh, being in my room one night, really upset. So I was probably 15. And my mother coming in and asked me why I was so upset. And I said, because I've got to make a decision right now whether or not I'm going to be a full-time musician because wow. all, the, all the people that had gone on to great, two, you know, successful careers made that decision when they were this age, you know. Yeah. I can't, I've, got, I've got to do it. And that night, I remember I woke up the next morning and just cleared my schedule of anything that wasn't required or musical. And um, I was lucky enough to uh, go to the to performing arts at Dillard and... Um, I played in uh, the school chorus, and I played in the jazz band there, and I played for the dance class for the theater department. And after school, I played in jazz bands and rock bands. And um, so Fort Lauderdale was a great place for me to go to high school. It was a nice stepping stone before I made the jump when I graduated high school in New York City. Wow, it's amazing. We both moved to Plantation or Fort Lauderdale area at the same exact age. I came from New York at age 15. And uh, we're relative. We're basically the same age, so that's a, a strange coincidence. And yeah, for those people listening that don't know, the uh, headquarters for this show is right here in Plantation, Florida, where I have actually re relocated. So it's um it's a very cool little connection that we have here. Now, listening to your music, which we're going to do shortly, or we're almost eleven minutes into the show, and we haven't played anything yet, and this is really exciting. People are going to love this music we're going to play. Um. By listening to your music, you can really tell that there's a a combination, a hybrid, if you will, of classical style, at least, and rock. So I know you can tell that your your background, your beginnings, and your influences come from rock. So what was your favorite music growing up as a kid while you were being classically trained? Well, Led Zeppelin was huge for me growing up. Um uh, I remember uh, the first time I heard Stairway to Heaven, and I immediately went out and got uh, that album, and then I went and got all the other Led Zeppelin albums. And I loved the, um, I loved everything about them, the mystique, the ambiance, the, the, uh, the ambiguousness of the text. You know, nobody really knew what the hell they were singing about. Right, right. And, uh, but I also loved the, the level of the musicianship. I mean, Robert Plant, an amazing singer, yeah. Jimmy Page, an amazing guitar player. You know, just everyone in the band was absolutely phenomenal musicians, and I really just studied everything in their album. Um, you know, and, and then I I got into all the other rock stuff of of, uh, of the seventies, which was um, David Bowie. I was into a lot of British music: Bowie, uh, The Who, um, Zeppelin, Stones, Beatles. 
you know, all that stuff. And, of course, piano players, uh, um, I played a lot of Billy Joel and Elton John growing up, too. Right, right. You know, but, but, I, but I, I was classically trained, so I was always studying classical music. I was always playing, uh, whether it was Beethoven or Rachmaninoff or Shostakovich or Gershwin, and I was also playing a lot of jazz stuff because I was always studying jazz and playing in jazz bands. Um, so I definitely was well-rounded in my musical upbringing, but, but the, the, it was all that British rock I really loved. You know, and I, I got into Springsteen and stuff like that a little later on. <laughs> I had two older brothers, so whatever they were listening to, you know, of course, at a very early age, I was listening to uh, whatever they were listening to, which was a lot of Stones, Springsteen, uh, and Bowie. Right. Wow. And the, the similarities of our, uh, upbringings just keep on coming. It's amazing. Um, but it, you know, it ends at the level of <laughs> piano playing skill that you have. And then we're going to get right into this. Let's listen to, we're first going to listen to one of your, uh, your, your earlier, a piece of your earlier work. And then we're going to listen to a sample of uh, your newest album that's out. And we'll tell everybody the details and how they can get that and everything. But let's go back to 1996 when you did an album called Fatherless Child. You, sto- you, saw- you started to touch upon it, meeting Eddie Van Halen and getting him involved with this record. How did that happen? And then we'll uh, take a listen to uh, one of the tunes from that, which is just a great sounding song called Blinded by Pain. How did the Eddie Van Halen connection happen? Well, like I said, I was I was in Park City, decided to um, uh, stay for uh, a ski season, the second ski season, and I met this guy named David, who uh, was a photographer for the local newspaper, and we used to mountain bike all the time and go snowboarding together all the time, and one day he said um, that his brother, or no, that his sister was coming to town, and uh, we were looking at the newspaper, and um, it said, photo by David Bertinelli. And I said, yeah. What are you, Valerie's brother? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> I, said, I said, you mean I've known you all this time, you never told me that, and you're inviting me to dinner with Valerie and Ed? And he says, yeah. Oh, my God. And I was like, holy shit. We had like, we, we had like a 15-minute wrestling match. Just like, I was like beating the shit out of him. Like, I couldn't believe that he... <laughs> He really never wore it on his sleeve, you know. He kept it very close to his chest. Wow. And um, so anyway, that night, we had dinner, and Ed and I just hit it off. I remember sitting on the floor in the living room of of some friend's house. Ed comes bouncing in and just comes over and sits down on the floor, and we started talking like we were old friends. Wow. And uh, super down-to-earth. We just connected on a very uh, person-to-person level, just talking to just bullshitting, you know, just talking about this and that. And then we sat down at dinner, and it was ironic. I actually had to leave early because I was at a gig that night because I'm always gigging. Right. And um, and I just looked around the table. He said, why don't we all go up and see Rich play? Um, and I said, great, I'll save you guys a table. So I get to the club, and I whisper to the owner, <laughs> don't tell anybody, but Eddie Van Halen and Valerie Bernelli are coming up, so we got to save a table down front. Oh, my God. I said, don't tell anybody. So, of course, within 10 minutes, Word flew around town, and you couldn't even move in the place. It, yeah. was just, it was packed. And so I'm up there playing my first set, and they're not showing up, and I'm starting to get a little nervous that they're not coming. And then all of a sudden, David comes in and says, we're here. And uh, they came in, and it was, it was a, another one of those you know, crystal nights that uh, it was just great. I, I, I was spot on. I played you know, 120%. 
and just gave him my all for like two hours, just a dripping and sweat show. And everybody in town was there, and they all knew what was going on. They knew I was there to see me, and they were singing along at the top of their lungs with every song. There was just a lot of love in the air that night. And um, so when I got done, Ed came up to me and just gave me this big kiss on the lips and said, you know, you were great. How can I help you? And that started basically uh, from that point on, like the next three years. Wow. Ed, Ed and I stayed very close. Um whether I was at their house playing volleyball on the beach or golf or at the studio working on music or we were snowboarding together. We were just uh, very close those three years. And that's when we did these recordings because what he wound up offering me was, he said, look, you come out to 5150. Jesus. And cause the, the only recording I had at the time was my first album called Just Might Make It. I had made in New York. Um, before I went out to Park City, and it was just piano and voice. And he said, "Let's um, go in the studio and let's pick some songs, and let I'll produce them. Um, you bring, you take care of the musicians. I'll take care of the studio, and I'll bring in Andy Johns. Um, for huh. those of you who don't know, Andy Johns uh, engineered um, the Rolling Stones." Uh, I think it was Beggar's Banquet. All right, Rich. You're just, Ed, you're just name dropping now, man. <laughs> he did Exile Mainstream. He did Stairway to Heaven. Right. Um, you know, he, so he, he brought Andy Johns in to co-produce an engineer. And I flew my band out from New York. And um, we laid down the rhythm tracks in one week to, I think, five songs. And then over the course of the following months, Ed wound up doing all the guitar work. Unbelievable, and unbelievable. That's just a, a fascinating story, and it's incredible. And you know, not to not to uh, to venture off the uh, the subject, but I I have a, like a similar encounter that I had with uh, Jimmy Page. Now I'm wondering when I when I tell the story of having dinner with Jimmy Page and hanging out with Jimmy Page, I almost feel like people are looking at me like, ah, you know, you're you're making this up and you're. Your name dropping. I've really kind of at this point stopped telling the story. Do you ever find yourself, you know, going, "Wow, this just sounds almost too amazing to be true"? No, I mean, I, I don't. It, it's not like I introduced myself. Hi, I'm Rich Wyman. I worked with Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, if, if it comes up in a kind of an interview or something like that, or a conversation, or right. if somebody's asked me, you know. Hey, I got your second album. Who's that on guitar? Yeah, you know, you know, if if it comes up, I'll 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 bring it up. But uh, yeah, and in fact, it's like David. It's not the kind of thing that I just blurt out there. Right. And I originally planned to play this song and then tell people afterwards that uh, Eddie was on guitar, and then you know people would have just been like rewinding to hear it again. But here's what happened. Here's a result of that recording session that happened as a result of meeting Eddie Van Halen. This is from the album called. Fatherless Child. This is a song called Blinded by Pain, a 1996 uh, solo album, Fatherless Child, with Rich Wyman on The Bill Murphy Show. Check this out, folks. Get something done today She 
driven by anger, driven by rage, and the thought of it makes you say. Blinded by Pain from Fatherless Child. We're with Rich Wyman on the show today. Fantastic work there. And you know, Rich, I can hear, I can actually hear the 5150 studio on that recording. It's just so, you know, it has that, it has a character and it's certainly there just like it is in the Van Halen records. 
Yeah, it's a big sound. Yeah. Definitely a big sound. You know, that's the... And that's just... And that's the, the way that Ed approaches every song. Like, the first thing I was thinking when I was just listening, I haven't heard it in a long time. I remember when we got to the chorus of the song, um, the original chorus didn't go like that. That was, like, Ed's idea to go to that. Um, oh. Chorus. And she was blind, 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 you know, the whole thing. Um, and we literally cut the tape and re-recorded the chorus over the drums, and Ed played a whole different bass line, and then I played a different piano line, wow. and we completely changed the chorus. So it was a much more, you know, Ed likes, you know, he likes big, big is better. Yeah, know? oh, sure. And so the sound is big, the chorus is bigger, you know, his whole approach to it, um, that's the way he approached it. Yeah. And, so it, it really has that handprint on it. It has that 5150 wall of sound on the chorus, you know, dynamic yeah. that's on the 5150 albums, you know? you know. So very, very cool. So as I always do on the show, I like to get into techie kind of uh, technical details and stuff and recording. And with you, the first thing I could think of asking you is about the piano and the pianos that you've played over the years. And I'm wondering, I'm sure that there's been a moment that you experienced where you sat down and played what you thought was the most magical sounding piano. And um, also in, in that kind of, in that answer, kind of tell us a little bit about what type of piano you're playing and what you enjoy playing the most. Do you have a single moment that you remember where you went, wow, this piano sounds unbelievable? Yeah, well, most recently, uh, there's a piano called Fazioli. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. They're made in Italy. And, um, the first time there's, there's in Salt Lake City, there's a place called Baldison Pianos, which is the largest Fazioli uh, dealership in the Western United States. And these pianos take between two to three years to make, mm. and they've got one here in their showroom that is just amazing. Um, it's also, I believe, the largest concert grand piano made. It's bigger than any Steinway. Wow! It's over it's over eleven feet long, and it plays like butter, as they say, and it has the biggest sound, so the action is super fast, plus it's also got a very big sound, and also, um, I like a brighter sounding piano, you know, a lot of Steinways can be more mellow, right. and mid-rangey, but uh, I like, that's why, like, in the studio, the Yamaha C7 is one of the most popular uh, studio grand pianos, because it has a, a very full sound. It's got a bright sound. It's got the big bottom, the big top, the big middle. Um, and I always say it, it takes a lick and it keeps on ticking because those Yamaha C7s are great because you can they can take eight hours of studio sessions every day and still sound great day after day. But this Fazioli in particular, I think it's called the F2. I used it on my album last year called Songs I Wish I Wrote. Um, they let me actually go in at closing time. From six o'clock in the evening until like three o'clock in the morning, they let me record oh, wow. in in the showroom on this piano, um, and it was incredible. So it's a gigantic, enormous work of art. I think it sells for about two hundred thousand dollars. Oh my god! This uh, this, this particular Fazioli, um, and so that piano is really magical. And all the Fazioli's are great, but this one in particular they have in their showroom that they I've I've used it at concerts. It costs a fortune to have them move it and set it up and for concerts, um, but it's worth it. Um, so that, and like I said, the Yamaha C7s 
are just battle axes that always sound great. Um, most Baldwin pianos, you know, when I was growing up, I used to love Baldwin. You know, when I was going to Manhattan School of Music, they had rooms and rooms and rooms of practice pianos, and the Mason and Hamlins were always good. Uh, the Baldwins were usually good. Those were my favorites. I'm not a big Steinway guy, you know. I just right. uh, uh, for my for my style of playing, I'm, I've always been told I'm a, I'm a very heavy touch, and um, I'm a very percussive player. Right, and, and, uh, and Baldwin seem to react to that very well too. Yeah, they do. No, it's it's great to hear that from uh, from someone who's been there and been around the world, played all kinds of different pianos. And with all that said. Uh, there's another kind of tech, techie question I wanted to ask you, and I'm sure that when you listen to any recording and you hear the piano, you've got a very finely tuned ear for it, um, and I'm sure you do a little picking apart. At this point in your career, can you instantly recognize those virtual piano sounds and, and tell that something is uh, you know, uh, a, a fake, for, for lack of a better term, and, and rather than you know, an authentic piano? Are you able to recognize that instantly now? I like to think I can. Right. I mean, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I. I think that first of all, they've come a long way. They really have. Uh, so the uh, the synthesized digital pianos today are so much better than they were even three years ago or and, four years ago. Which is the point uh, of my question exactly. That's why I was wanted to hear it from you. And they really have. They've come so far that honestly, I don't play on real pianos very much anymore because when you're touring or when you're playing somewhere, um, digital pianos can be made to look like grand pianos, uh, whether it's inside of a big fake grand piano shell right. or, or it's in one of these digital pianos that comes already looking like a grand piano. So they can give the appearance of a piano. Um, and then the great thing, you just plug it in and it's in tune night after night. You don't have to worry about feedback. You don't have to worry about miking it properly. You don't have to worry about strings breaking mm-hmm. or it being in tune or out of tune. So because the sound has come along so far, and they really do, they sound better than, oftentimes than real grand pianos. Right, which per- right, and, and, and I'm, I hate to cut you off, but it perfectly leads into which my next question, and that is that... Along the way, maybe some t- some of the ways that people record pianos and maybe not painstakingly set it up and do it correctly um, can hurt a sound of a piano. What What do you think? And I think I know the answer to this question. What What have you learned? Like the biggest lesson you've learned about recording a grand piano. What are the things to look out for? And maybe for someone who may be getting ready to do something like that, because I know we have a lot of producer types listening. What would you What would be like one helpful tip that you would give about recording a grand piano correctly? Well, I still go back to one of my favorite piano sounds I ever got, um, and that was back at the power station in New York City, and the piano, the, the engineer mic'd it with two tiny condenser mics set up in an X shape, crossing each other, just inches above the hammers, right in the middle of the piano, one pointing towards the low end, and one pointing towards the high end, and they were really closely mic'd. I like very closely mic'd piano. That mic set up, that, that X-shaped, the crossing of the microphones, and there's a, there's a studio here in Salt Lake City that actually has a Fazioli uh, called Counterpoint Studios, and they have 
a mic stand that actually has that mount, so you actually has the X-shaped condenser mics, and we put it really tight right above the hammers, so it, it picks up the yeah. sound of the hammers going up and down when you push up the pedal. And then we put another microphone out in the room to pick up the whole natural reverberation in the room. And right. we use the room mic to add some body to it. But it's those two really close mics right on the strings uh, in the X formation. And, and as, uh, as with any acoustic instrument, anybody that uh, you know, knows, has experience with that knows that it's really, you know, the room is most of the sound, you know, and, and then you get those close mics to get the impact. It's really, uh, really important stuff. Yeah, I'd even say that the two close mics in a, in a grand piano are even more important. Uh, you know, it, it, it is important to have the, the room mic, but those two mics up close give it the real uh, intensity and uh, the immediacy and the impact. Uh, right. You know, like on the new album, uh, there's a song I do called Galway. It's just piano and string, violin, viola, and cello. Mm-hmm. There's a few guitars in there, and there's a little percussion. There's no drum. There's no drums. There's no band, and I love it because you can really hear the actual grand piano, all the parts moving. You know, you hear the keys. You hear the pedal being stepped on. Right. <laughs> I love that. Oh, that you makes know. it that all that stuff makes it real. Is if you're sitting right next to it. This is really really cool inside stuff that we're hearing from Rich Wyman. And Rich, I'm going to kind of break uh, the format that I usually go, and that would be to play another song now, have you talk about it before and afterwards, but I know you're kind of um, strained for time here. you got a gig coming up, so what we'll do is we'll talk about the other tune we're going to play, and then we'll close the show with it so I can let you go, and then you don't have to listen to your own recording, which you've done a thousand (laughs) times already, too. So here's what we'll do first before we we get into the other recording from your latest album that we're going to play. You're um, actually on location for a gig that you're playing. Where where is it that you're playing uh, tonight, which would be August 8th? And then um, where can people see you in the Utah area throughout the month of August? Because I know there's a bunch of dates on there. And anyone that's even close to you that's hearing this stuff, I'm sure, is going to want to come see you. So what's the gigging situation right now? Uh, well, this, this whole summer, I'm, I'm booked every Tuesday and Friday at the Canyons Resort at the Hyatt Escala Lodge, uh, which is a brand new place and beautiful and wonderful acoustics, uh, all ages venue. And um, so I'm there every Tuesday and Friday from 7 to 10. Every Wednesday and Thursday, I'm down here in Salt Lake at Keys on Main, which is on Main Street between 2nd and 3rd South. And it's... Uh, it's a dueling piano bar that holds about 600 people. Wow. Play. wow. Yeah, and I go face-to-face with another piano player. Um, and then Saturday nights, I'm up at the Snowbird Ski Resort, which is probably my favorite resort. Uh, it's an awesome mountain. And the Cliff Lodge there is a, a huge lodge, and at the very top floor on the 10th floor is the Airy Lounge overlooking the mountain, and I play up there on Saturday nights this summer. Wow, and the, I don't think I could, could think of a better, you know, uh, atmosphere, surroundings for you to be playing in, to hear that kind of music in such a, a beautiful part of the country. Um, yeah. Another thing is, uh, after spending this much time in uh, Park City, Utah, I bet your, your skiing ability's gotten a lot better, huh? <laughs> well, I actually blew my knee out like my second season here skiing and that like you do operations. like you do <laughs> so i i gave up skiing for snowboarding and i've been snowboarding ever since and uh 
snowboarding grabbed me in a, in a way that skiing didn't. You know, I just it was one of those. It became a passion. I thought about it when I wasn't doing it. I was never like that with skiing. Snowboarding right. definitely grabbed me, and I'm definitely a border. Oh, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that people turning over to ski. Being the ice skater that I am and hockey player, I I prefer to have two skis on my legs. But that's that's just me. Most of you guys jump over to the snowboarding. So, I, yeah. I I've heard that many many times. Very very cool. Sure. And and um, so when you so after this, when you go back out on tour and do the you know, present the, uh, the, your solo material, where, where is that headed? Have you got any dates uh, set for the future? Right now I'm booking Europe again for November. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm heading back over to Amsterdam and I'll be in Holland for probably three weeks. Uh, probably uh, go to Ireland for a week or so Ooh. and maybe a couple shows in Belgium. Well, that won't suck. And that I kind of one final question in that kind of subject there. I wanted to talk about, uh, what's the biggest difference you've noticed from the audiences that you hear in the Netherlands and Ireland and Europe, for that matter, compared to the United States? What's the, what's the big difference in there in the audiences compared to over here? You know, I, I just feel like the, the like the people in Holland. Art is not a luxury. Art is as essential as air. You know, it is vital their survival you know they they really soak in art whether it's music or painting or whatever it might be um it's just vital to their their culture in, in a different kind of way and when they listen you know, they just they listen at a very high level and they sing to every song with, with every word um you know that's not all of europe that's i'm just talking about the netherlands of you know Eddie Van Halen is from Holland. That's kind of how I wound up going there because the Van Halen fan club in Holland ordered like 500 of my CDs and sold them all in like a week. Oh wow! Wow! So I knew I I knew I had a fan base there, and I started going there, and yeah, it just it took off. That my fan base there is really good, and uh, but Ireland's totally different. In Ireland, they want to hear songs they already know, uh huh, and and then they sing along at the top of their lungs. Uh, it's very difficult to break original music in Ireland. Uh, I've been going there for years. I love the culture and I love the country and I love the people. And Ireland's one of my favorite places to go. But it's a totally different show than the show I would do in Holland. Do you find yourself find yourself doing covers when you're in Ireland too? I have to do covers to pull them in, right? And then and then start sprinkling the originals on them. <laughs> and I've developed, you know, some some a, a fan base in Ireland now where there are places in ireland where people you know sing along to my songs now but it's taken a while that's fantastic man and, I, and it's I'm really really beautifully described the way you talked about the audience in holland it's you're not the first guest I've had on the show that's described the differences of the audiences for, you know, for Europe and, you know, Holland for that matter. But it's, it, it, the way you describe that is beautifully. It is part of their lifeblood, and it's uh, really, really cool. RichWyman.com has much more on Rich, plus video credits and liner notes on all the records, Rich's blog and contact info. Of course, many of his CDs can be found on iTunes. Now, this latest record I found to be a little bit um, veiled in mystery. I kind of couldn't find it on iTunes. It was had a limited release first overseas and then in Utah. What's the story with that record, and how long has it been out now? A few months? You know, when I went over to, I went over to Holland in May, and we did a Dutch release for it there. Um, I came home and did a release for it in Park City last month. I'm 
gearing up for a big release in Salt Lake City in October. Okay. And at that point, I'm going to be releasing both the physical and the digital CD online. Uh, we just finished a video for a new song called 100 Years, which can be seen on YouTube. We shot it out at the Bonneville Salt Flats where they set the land speed records. Okay. And uh, that was an am- it's a great video. So that's out on YouTube. But, yeah, I've been just kind of keeping it close to my chest, but we're going to do a full-on release in October. Well, that explains that. So Good Company, the latest record from Rich Wyman, is actually sort of not out to the masses yet. So um, I hope you don't mind that I stole the uh, title track from your website, and we're going to play it for everybody right now. So I I feel kind of like I'm getting a privileged premiere going on here. So You are, you are. I appreciate that, (laughs) and as long as I have your permission, we will proceed. (laughs) <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. All right. So, Good Company, the title track from the new record. Talk a little bit about this, and then we'll say goodbye to Rich Wyman, let you do your gig. And um, so, describe this cut a little bit before I play it. Uh, this is, uh, I was really kind of doing a test. You know, there are so many hit songs today, whether it's Lady Gaga or Train or Jason Mraz. There seems to be this formula these days where it's just four chords that repeat. You okay. Know? Absolutely. I've totally noticed that. Yeah, You know, they don't really go anywhere. Songs don't evolve into a bridge and a chorus. It's just the same four chords over and over again. And sometimes they don't even resolve. The the progression doesn't even resolve. It just kind of keeps going back, you know? Yeah, so Good Company was kind of a challenge to myself to see if I could do it. Oh, wow. And basically the song is just B-flat, F, A-flat, E-flat. B-flat, F, A-flat, E-flat. It really is for the whole song. But... Because of the way I think I was created with it, and I really had, had a lot of fun with the arrangement. I've got horns, uh, percussion, uh, guitars, lots of great instruments, a lot of great musicians. And it wound up being, a, it, coming, it turned out as just a standout track. It's a great song. And Everyone if, loves it. If I'm remembering when I listened to it from this afternoon correctly, um, when you talk about those four chords, it's sort of like an underlying um, continuous bass note through the whole thing on a few of the chords, right? Am I getting that right? That's kind of how I separate the verse from the chorus. During the verse, the bass pedals an F. And during the chorus, it goes with the chord changes, B flat, F, A flat, E flat. Uh So, so So the chorus is all this movement and the verse is much more uh, stable. Excellent. Well, it's called Good Company, and we'll wrap up the show with it here in a couple of minutes after we say goodbye to Rich Wyman. Hey, buddy, I really appreciate you coming on the show, and uh, you know, I know where my next skiing destination is going to be, so I can look you up and we can hang out. Definitely. I look forward to it. All right, buddy. You know, go enjoy your gig, and uh, thanks again for coming on the show with me, man. Thanks, Bill. Have a good one. You too, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. That's Rich Wyman, and we're going to listen to it right now. It's called Good Company. We really, as usual, appreciate everybody uh, sharing and liking the show. Continue to do so and post links on your Facebook page like you do. And uh, we'll catch you next time here. It's Good Company from Rich Wyman. Check this out. What a privilege to have him on the show today. We'll catch you next time at BillMurphyShow.com.
live our dreams.